I'm pleased to welcome Audio-Technica back as presenting partner for Season 5 of Let's Talk About Sects. Audio-Technica's support has allowed this podcast to continue to grow, and their equipment is a huge reason why it sounds great. 60 years ago, Hideo Matsushita established Audio-Technica in a small flat in Shinjuku, Tokyo. Today, you can experience his legacy with affordable audio equipment to help with working from home, content creation, and if you're like me, getting the best out of your vinyl collection. Find out more at audio-technica.com and use promo code LTAS10 if you're in Australia to get a discount and support this show. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Carolyn Milliman learned about a form of meditation called ascending at a weekend workshop in Western Australia when she was 21. The technique supposedly came from an ancient order of monks in the Himalayas known as the Ashayas. A couple of years later, in North Carolina, she decided to dedicate her life to the teachings. But a decade on, some of the behaviours of her own teachers weren't sitting well with her. Looking back, she sees that the organisation she'd become enmeshed with was a cult. Welcome to Let's Talk About Sects, a podcast about cults around the world. I'm your host, Sarah Steele. Before we get into this episode, a content warning. This podcast deals with issues that some people may find disturbing, related to emotional abuse and controlling behaviours. This episode also includes mentions of suicide. Please use your discretion as to whether this will be suitable for you and those around you who may be listening too. Robert Vaughan Adams, known as Vaughan, was born on the 13th of April 1949 in Seattle, Washington. It's difficult to find out much about his early life, but some write-ups have him graduating with an English degree from the University of Washington. In his 20s, he became involved in the Transcendental Meditation Movement and was teaching meditation from 1971. Transcendental meditation was big at the time and is still practised widely today. I've had a number of people ask me to look into it for the show, and I hope to get to it in greater detail one day. A description of one TM exercise referred to as yogic flying in a 1987 Washington Post article sounds a lot like one of Om Shinrikyo's practices. 
Vaughan dedicated himself to transcendental meditation and claimed that its founder, Maharishi Mahesh Yogi, agreed to formally take him on as a student, though this is impossible to corroborate and Maharishi was not known to do this, particularly at this point in time when he had mostly distanced himself from students and teachers in what had become a huge organisation. Vaughan wrote that for most of the years between 1970 and 1975, he spent at least five hours a day in meditation, and for several months during that period, 12 to 18 hours a day were spent in intense inner exploration. Vaughan helped found Transcendental Meditation Centres around the United States, and visited Europe to see the Maharishi when he could. He writes of a visit to Engelberg, Switzerland in October 1975, that following a three-hour lecture as the Maharishi walked through admirers in a hotel lobby ten metres away from him, quote, Suddenly a beam of pure awareness flowed from his forehead and filled me with its perfect light. He continues, From that magical instant of time, the awareness of the unbounded, of the ascendant, has been my constant companion. It is closer to me than my mind, closer to me than my heart, closer to me than my breathing. It never diminishes in any way, but I have found that it can be increased. At will, I can move it to others. Sometimes they recognise this. Whenever that happens, we together create a moment of purest joy, of purest wonder. This unchanging inner awareness of the Ascendant was a wordless gift of Maharishi's infinite consciousness to mine. It is my privilege, task and joy in this life to share this gift with others. This quote comes from an archive of a forum post on the FactNet message board, written by an anonymous poster with the username Scribe in November 2004. This user posted a number of detailed entries about the Ashaya's ascension and its founder over late 2004 and early 2005, and other users familiar with the man who would later become known as MSI confirmed that Scribe's information seemed to be accurate and in fitting with their knowledge. At some point Vaughan married and had children with a woman known as Dell, though I'm not sure if this is short for something, and the young family moved to Fairfield, Iowa. There was a large transcendental meditation community there due to the founding of the private Maharishi International University by Maharishi Mahesh Yogi in 1973. A quick Google tells me that the university accepts around 95% of applicants, of whom around 49% graduate. A former TM practitioner wrote under the name Tony on the Cult Education Institute forum that Dell, his then wife, was a sweet, devoted mother, but that with the meditation expectations of those truly devoted to transcendental meditation, quote, it was challenging to impossible for her to live to Vaughan's standards and still care for the family. Scribe writes that Vaughan was working as an architect at this point, and Tony writes that she understood his main business to be in construction mostly building and remodelling houses for the local TM community in Fairfield. He was also writing in his spare time, and in 1986 published a book named Para. The University of Sydney currently holds a copy in its rare books and special collections at the Fisher Library, which is unfortunately closed for building maintenance at the time of writing this episode, though I'd love to have taken a look at it. The book is categorised under science fiction and fantasy. Towards the end of the 1980s, the construction work wasn't going so well, and Vaughan's life fell apart. In 1988, his marriage broke down, he lost his home, and his business went bankrupt. For the next 18 months, he travelled around the country in search of direction, 
and eventually started teaching his own version of the TM practice outside of the confines of the larger organisation, which he had apparently become disillusioned with. He called his teachings Ascension, and Scribe writes that most of the teaching material, the practice instructions, and the method itself, excepting the actual words of the Ascension attitudes, are identical to TM. Vaughan's teachings didn't get that much uptake for the first few years, and somewhere in the early to mid-1990s he changed tack. He'd initially told people who asked that what he termed the Ascension Attitudes had come from his own supposed teacher, TM founder Maharishi Mahesh Yogi. Now instead, he said that they'd come from a mysterious order of monks in the Himalayas called the Ashayas. In 1995, Vaughan published a book called First Thunder, under the initials MSI. The S and the I stood for Sadashiva Isham, but according to Scribe, at this stage he said he wasn't permitted to reveal what the M stood for. First Thunder is written in the first person as a fictionalised account, supposedly to protect the Ashaya monks from being located by others. It takes the form of an adventure story. The downtrodden author, who has recently lost his wife, his business and his home, meets up with an old college friend named Ollie who seems transformed. Ollie describes his own meeting up with another former college contact, Alan, who tells Ollie that his own transformation comes from a series of techniques called Ascension Attitudes. Quote, He told me his life was changing on the basis of new experience, not new belief and said I would discover the same thing if I could be bold enough to try it. He said that there were 27 techniques in all, divided into seven spheres of attitudes, each sphere consisting of about four techniques, each sphere more subtle and more powerful than the one before. He said that humanity as a whole was going to learn to ascend, and commented this was all prophesied by St. John nearly 2,000 years ago and also by every other great culture on the earth at one time or another including the Egyptians, Mayans, Hopi, Chinese, and West and East Indians. But most, if not all, of these prophecies had been distorted or misinterpreted or lost. At the start of the book, when Ollie's attractive companion Sharon first tells the author that Ollie has been studying and ascending with a group of monks who believe they are following the true but hidden teachings of John and of Christ, the author says to her, Oh, now come on, every sect of Christianity, every cult on the earth from Waco to Guyana says, our way only, all else are doomed to hell. Why, we won't even be buried with those miserable sinners. We'll have our own private graveyard, so we'll be easy to find during the second coming. I don't need this. Then he pushes his chair back and stands to leave. He comes around though, of course. I have to say I was surprised at the boldness of front-footing the cult comparisons right from the get-go. Although the book is described as a fictionalised account, many were led to believe that MSI had travelled to the Himalayas and spent 18 months in the company of the Ashaya monks he spoke of. A lot of current Ashaya-related websites state that he did. But according to Scribe, a former ascender hired a private investigator who ascertained that MSI had not left the country in the late 1980s or early 1990s. 
Either way, the tale bolstered MSI's teachings and his Ascension courses became much more popular following the release of First Thunder, which was soon followed by Second Thunder. MSI bought a property in North Carolina with the help of some of his students and set up a teacher training facility there. He revealed that the M of his name stood for Maharishi, like his guru Maharishi Mahesh Yogi. The Merriam-Webster Dictionary defines Maharishi as a Hindu teacher of mystical knowledge, with the word derived from the Sanskrit for sage and poet. MSI had an article called The Ashaya's Ascension, published in the May 1997 edition of Sedona Journal, which today is called the Sedona Journal of Emergence and whose mission is to, amongst other things, provide a forum for those who wish to speak to us from other dimensions and realities. MSI's article explains that in the Himalayas there is a garden valley known as Vashti, which is the home of 108 ascended masters known as the Ashayas. It goes on to say that the Ashayas are an ancient order of deathless monks who have been around since 250,000 years ago, quote, when the human race returned to earth. But then, quote, 2,000 years ago, Isha ben Joseph, Jesus the Christ, spent seven years in Vashti, learning of his own ascended status. His intent was to bring the full knowledge of the ascension teachings back to the world from the Ashayas, but the depths of ignorance in the West made his victory partial. Realising that the darkness in the heart of the human race was too great for ascension to succeed at the time, he ordered his closest disciple, John, to return to Vashti and help preserve the ascension teachings until the world would be receptive to them. It seems that this time finally came in the last decade of the second millennium after Isha's life, and the Ashayas reached consensus that they were ready to release complete knowledge of the teaching of ascension again to the human race and MSI had access to the quickest route to enlightenment. He wrote, The six-month teacher training program, which is primarily devoted to as many hours a day possible spent ascending, has universally given the experience of the first degree of enlightenment, perpetual consciousness, within two and a half months. Though he admitted this might seem astounding to those following other paths to enlightenment, MSI asserted that enlightenment was in fact easy, what was actually difficult was holding it back. Quote, It takes a tremendous amount of spiritual energy to hold back the infinite one. This is what ages us, this is what sickens us, this is what makes us sleep so much at night and also be so partially awake during the days. Holding back the ascendant one is like trying to keep a dam from bursting with a single hand. It is impossible. The effort, continued long enough, kills. Unfortunately, MSI had been suffering from throat cancer for months by the time this article was published, and he himself passed away on the 12th of August, 1997. It was not long after MSI's death that on the other side of the world, Carolyn Milliman found herself attending an introductory ascension course in Australia. She was kind enough to speak with me for this episode and told me how she came across the teachings. I was just really looking for a meditation technique at the time and my friend informed me of a class that was being taught at his neighbour's property and this is in Western Australia and he said it was coming up and to come to an introductory talk. So this was back when I was 21 
And so I went along to the talk. It was on a Thursday night and it was really informal, just really welcoming, warm. And they said to us that meditation was really easy. You can incorporate it into your life really easily, whatever you're doing, and just with your eyes closed and your eyes open. And we can teach you these four techniques this weekend if you want to come back. And I really enjoyed the two teachers that were instructing the weekend. One was Canadian and one was American, a male and a female. They were partners. And I ended up doing that weekend and loving it and actually really enjoying the practice of ascension. You learn the first four techniques over the course of the weekend, praise technique, a gratitude, a love and a compassion technique. That weekend course was the introductory course known as First Sphere, which is still how many people begin with Ascension today. There's an upcoming First Sphere weekend course in an outer suburb of Melbourne, Victoria, that costs $495 to attend. Once you've paid for and attended any First Sphere course, you can attend any other First Sphere course anywhere around the world for free. Carolyn was working retail at the time she attended, and she found it really helpful to do 20 minutes of ascending each morning, and again when she got home exhausted after a day on her feet. She'd also used the techniques during the day, but she hadn't yet considered that she might dedicate her life to the practice. In that first sphere, I remember one of the teachers coming up to me and saying, oh, I can see you in North Carolina, which is where the actual retreat was, where they came from, where they were based, the Society for Ascension, and... It didn't really occur to me that that is actually what I wanted to do, you know, as a job or like as a life career. But I think it was like planting a seed, which was like very intentional. And and so then a few months later, I did an advanced retreat, a weekend retreat where you just ascend all day and just talk about your practice and get help and feedback. And I really enjoyed that as well. That was with two different teachers that came out. And then I ended up going to North Carolina for a 10-day retreat in 98, and that was when I had no intention of staying, but ended up staying and doing my training to become a teacher. I wondered if Carolyn had been viewing the initial trip as a holiday or more of an investment in her self-development, as I couldn't imagine 10 days in North Carolina for a 21-year-old retail worker was an easily affordable endeavour. She told me it was a bit of both. I just really wanted to be truly like content and happy in my life, just trying to find a purpose, a sense of meaning. And I think I thought that would help. And that's, that's what I was trying to find in my life because I'd, I'd been to university. I'd done a year of biology at Curtin and dropped out. And so I was kind of drifting and just trying to find my sense of purpose in life. And I think you're quite vulnerable, you know, being young and looking for something to dedicate your life to that you can find enjoyable and rewarding. And I think that's what really drew me in when I went to the retreat, the 10-day retreat. I thought, oh, wow, you know, these guys are really changing the world. (laughs) When Carolyn told me this, I wondered what it was about a group of people chasing personal enlightenment through meditation that gave her the impression that they were changing the world. Here's another quote from MSI's Sedona Journal article from 1997. The age prophesied by every significant ancient civilization in the history of the earth is at hand. 
we stand on the threshold of immortality and full enlightenment for the entire human race, not just some isolated part. I think the sense of joy that I felt and their sense of purpose was so clear. They they were very strong with their conviction that that was the way to reach enlightenment, the quickest and to get the word out to everyone in humanity. And so that's, it's kind of infectious. Like when you're so convinced that that is the only way. And I knew there were many other forms of like enlightenment. And I was originally going to go to India to go to an ashram, but that's when Ascension showed up in my life and I ended up going to America instead. So I was aware that there were many different paths So I don't know if I like really believe that that was the quickest path, but I knew that it was effective because it it had been working for me in bringing me a deeper sense of peace and joy. And so I felt really excited to be a part of that. You know, I think that's pretty common in coming into that group dynamic and, and seeing that and just being able to help people. I think that's just a natural human want is to to really contribute to society and I felt like that was a really effective way to do it. The idea was that bringing inner peace and then taking that same inner peace to everyone in the world through teaching the ascension attitudes, this was really the way to achieve peace on earth. I found this interesting from the Sedona Journal article by MSI again, quote, If we are sowing division, preaching destruction, seeking or finding evil in the world, even if we are looking for it with the intention of removing it, then we are part of the problem, not the cure. They pretty much tell you that that is like the highest purpose of being born into a human body, into like as a human being, is to reach enlightenment. And so they say that it's one of the fastest ways to achieve that through the Ashaya's Ascension techniques and the process of staying and becoming a teacher and then teaching it to the world. And because I'd experienced so much peace with it, I believe that, you know, I believe that that was the case and, and that became my mission in life from then on. Carolyn's parents were understandably a little shocked when they learned that their daughter wouldn't be coming back from her 10-day holiday as expected. Carolyn told me her family were concerned, but they attended a First Sphere course and learned to ascend so that they could understand better what she was doing, and they put their fears aside to be supportive of her. Yeah, my sister actually had a friend that was a policeman in Florida when I first joined, and she asked him, to look up the Society for Ascension, and he did, and it was considered harmless. Carolyn told me about the setup that allowed her to cover the US $10,000 cost of the teacher training course with her labour. The teacher training at the time, it was a six-month course, but if you didn't have the $10,000 up front, you could work for a year to pay for it. So that was called an assistantship, and you could work during the day between 10 and 4 
in different areas of the property during the year to then that would pay for your six months. So it's like an 18-month course. I had a few questions about this. The first being whether it struck her that $10,000, even if you did add in food and accommodation, seemed like an incredibly low wage for a year's worth of work. Extremely, yes. Looking back, yeah, definitely. And yeah, I had to go out and buy new clothes with the money that I had and you're placed in different areas. Like I was in the bakery when I first started and the kitchen. And so it's not super hard labour, but, you know, it's definitely, it's definitely a long time. So in this scheme, prospective teachers would work for a full year and then they would be able to take the six-month teacher training. Carolyn believes that this isn't a thing any of the groups are doing anymore. Another question I had about this was, how on earth could a young Australian travelling on a holiday visa get permission to stay in the USA to work for a year? Yes, so they had registered as a religion so we could get religious worker visas. I asked Carolyn whether it was considered to be a religion. No, they state explicitly that it's not a religion. While Carolyn was staying at the North Carolina property, she estimates there was an average of around 200 other people there. The numbers would fluctuate as some would be coming for shorter courses and teachers would come and go as they headed out to run First Sphere and other courses around the country and elsewhere. The accommodation was in dorm rooms. Carolyn has mostly fond memories of this time, where it felt like everyone was there to support one another. I asked Carolyn what the food was like. It was mostly vegetarian and we would have like a bit of fish or chicken sometimes and then when you're on your your six-month teacher training, they had actually suggested that it just be fruit during the day and then one meal at night. So it wasn't a lot of calories because you're supposed to be ascending all day, meditating all day, so you don't need the calories per se but you're still doing two sessions of yoga twice a day. And so it definitely was a restrictive diet. During the year-long working program, so-called assistants would ascend or meditate from 8 to 10am, work from 10 to 4, then ascend again from 4 to 6, though you'd stop a little earlier if you were on kitchen duty for dinner. Everyone would eat together, and then there would be an evening meeting at around 8pm, that Carolyn told me could go on indefinitely. I asked her what happened at these meetings. So we would just talk about our experiences of ascending, anything that was coming up for us, difficulties. If we were struggling with with anything, we'd just chat about anything that was coming up for us. And so we would look to the teachers leading the meetings, which was usually two, and they would answer our questions and then offer inspiration or whatever they wanted to talk about as well. Carolyn told me a bit about the structure of the organisation at this point in time. I think, so there was like a hierarchy. The top teachers were the ones considered to be in unity consciousness. So when... MSI was still alive, the leader that had started the Society for Ascension, he began acknowledging people in unity consciousness. So he started giving them numbers. 
as as that progressed and and they would share their experience of what we called the ascendant which is another name for the source god whatever you want to call it which was the goal of ascending was to have a clear experience of that and then you had to share that and then be acknowledged to be experiencing that and then so then when you were acknowledged to be experiencing that permanently then you were acknowledged to be in unity consciousness. And so those teachers then received numbers and so they were the ones leading the Society for Ascension when I first came. And so we looked to them for guidance and they were the ones that we had to ask to become our teacher, which was heavily recommended for you to achieve enlightenment, you had to have a teacher. And so I'm not sure how many were in unity when I was in back in like 98. I'm guessing about 30 or more. I'm not, I'm not exactly sure. And so you could choose between the ones that you gravitated the most towards. And, yeah, at the time I chose a male teacher This belief around each person having one particular teacher is something that doesn't quite make sense to Carolyn. There was a very strong belief that you absolutely needed a teacher to reach enlightenment, that they were the ones that needed to show you the way, which was a paradox because you come to it trying to find a tool or technique to find your own inner peace and knowing, but then you're told that suddenly you have to rely on this person and ask them for guidance for the rest of your life, basically. We had to take vows. We had to take vows to our teacher. We had to dedicate our life to them. And then we had to take a colour. So we had to wear white, red or black. So they were based on white was purity, which is what I always wore. Red was unconditional love and black was ruthless compassion. And MSI, the founder, mostly wore black. And on a rare occasion, he'd wear red. So there was like a bit of elitism about the Blackish Eyes, that they were the clearest, they were the leaders. And so people often strove to become Blackish Eyes. And yeah, MSI had created the mystique around them and they were very special. In terms of the coloured clothing, this wasn't special robes or anything like that. The Ashires would just be buying normal clothes, but in the colour that they had taken. Carolyn told me a bit more about the vows. It's a massive statement and commitment to say, you say it in front of the entire group. And so the first vows that you take, you actually had to fast for three days. And so on the third day, that evening of that meeting, you would, the first thing that you said were your vows to your teacher and then you could eat, eat after that again. So you just drank water or like herbal tea for those three days. And so, yes, yeah, so they began like I dedicate my life, my heart, my body, my soul to the white Ashaya path to my teacher and the Ashayas. So they were pretty, they were pretty intense. Considering how early on in the process Carolyn felt this pressure to choose and dedicate her entire life to a particular teacher, it seemed to me like it was a pretty big call to be making. Massive call. And that's the part that I just do not agree with whatsoever anymore. 
you cannot guarantee that one, somebody is enlightened, that two, they are going to remain in a state of enlightenment for the rest of their life. So it's it's a big call to make and I would say one of the biggest red flags of a cult or a sect. They require you to dedicate everything to them and, yeah, just have complete obedience and just refer to them for everything, which is very dangerous if that's the one person that you're looking to continuously for answers and they are giving you bad advice a lot of the time. I asked Carolyn if she could tell me about the actual teacher training after she'd spent her year working to pay for the course. So in the beginning, you are expected to learn, memorise some notes called validator notes, and they're actually to help with the process of ascending and just helping you coming back to the techniques and like the, the rhythm of it. And so they were helpful. You had to do that first and get those out of the way. And then you could ascend all day and then just attend the meetings and do your yoga. And then towards the end of the six months, you would then participate in the Black Book training, which is the material to learn how to teach the techniques when you're a teacher, when you go out into the world. So then we'd have studying and presentations and teachers would sit in and observe and just give advice on how to actually teach the techniques. So that was towards the end of the course. And so at the beginning, you were heavily suggested that it was the best thing for you to take a teacher. So you'd usually do that towards the beginning of of the six-month course. And and then you would spend most of your days in your dorm room just ascending or out if it was If it was summertime, you could go sit outside. You weren't restricted to a certain area. You could sit in the the meeting room and ascend. So just long hours of meditating was was the main focus. Yeah. And so evening meetings could get interesting. You never knew what was going to pop up for people. And mostly they were very supportive, but sometimes they could be quite brutal. And they explained that, that that was a part of ruthless compassion, that you had to cut away the ego and it had no place here. And so it, it could get quite harsh for some people especially. And, and I experienced that myself. I wondered whether Carolyn had weekends free and was able to leave to visit much of the surrounding area. So more when I was an assistant for those first 12 months, I could, I had a bit more freedom to go into town, but you still had to wear your colour. And this was in North Carolina, so it was quite Southern and quite a religious area. So I think they thought we were very strange. And they kind of wondered what the people and, you know, <laughs> over on Biodome Drive got up to. But I think they just kind of tolerated us because we weren't violent or anything. We were just usually pretty happy. So, yeah, I could we could come and go. But then for the six-month course, you were basically mostly had to just stay at the retreat. And 
you weren't encouraged to be in a lot of contact with your family. That was that was pretty evident from the beginning that it was more of a distraction. So you really had to focus on what you were doing to achieve your goal of having a stable experience of the ascendant. And so contact wasn't completely denied, but it wasn't encouraged to keep, you know, a strong connection with family members or friends. Yeah. So that was a bit tough for for my parents especially. Carolyn's mother also had questions about whether this teacher that she was dedicating her life to was taking the place of Carolyn's father, who would have liked to continue being the one offering her life advice. Carolyn would tell her that she still valued her father's wisdom as well. It was always hard to explain as well because there was always a sense of us and them. And if, if people weren't on the path to enlightenment like we were, then they were considered to be, we called it, the waking state. And it was it was quite derogatory, really, because you felt super special that you were on this mission and this path to saving the world and becoming enlightened. So it was like a sense of wanting them to join so they don't miss out. And so I think there was a sense of sadness for me as well that I felt like that they might miss out on that. Carolyn told me about her experiences once she'd finished the teacher training course and where it took her. After graduating, I taught briefly in America and then I came back to Australia and taught. Yeah, that's right, over east. And I did a tour of the east coast, which was which was really fun with another teacher who was really lovely. And so that was actually really enjoyable and we got to make some really lovely like all the the sponsors So they were the people, so this is how it was structured. We'd have sponsors around the world and they would host the first spheres. So you would go stay with them and then they'd have the the courses at their houses unless it was like a longer retreat and we'd booked somewhere else. It was usually in a person's home. So Carolyn found herself back in Australia towards the end of 1999 which is when the Society for Ascension in North Carolina fell apart. Carolyn had actually joined at a pretty fraught time in the organisation's existence. Before he died, according to Scribe on the FactNet forum, MSI had designated unity numbers to 10 teachers who were to take the SFA forward after his departure. But he also spoke regularly about immortality, and many of his students believed that if he did die, he would return to them in some form or another. These teachers did continue to run the SFA after MSI's death, and as Carolyn mentioned, the total number of teachers considered to be in unified consciousness by the time she got there was around 30. Without MSI's direction, there were a few different ideas around how things should proceed, and a number of competing priorities, in contrast with a more traditionally understood definition of the word unity. So there was a a major incident that happened when one of the teachers in Dallas had this, he said, awakening. And he said basically that he was channeling MSI and that he was going to have all the Unity teachers come and join him 
and then we were gonna he was gonna recreate ascension like a different group so he started pulling all the unity teachers and people from north carolina and all the important people and then they were all collecting in and i ended up going with my fiance at the time with his parents I'm going to quote from Scribe on the FactNet forum archive because the description of some of what was going on at the North Carolina property sounds incredibly intense. Quote, People were told they needed to get into their hearts or they would be left behind. A number of people were given a three-day ultimatum, after which time they were told to leave if they had not learned to feel. As things became more intense, several people were given new names such as Master Manipulator and The Man Who Cannot Feel. One woman, who later brought a lawsuit against the SFA, was ordered to do nothing but clean toilets all day, every day, over and over. Several people, in the name of getting them to feel, were physically beaten, one seriously enough to warrant a quick trip to the hospital. As this was all going on and a climate of tension and fear increased on the property, groups of people were daily being called out to join the group in Dallas with the instructions to wear all black and bring nothing with them. I didn't really know what to expect because the teacher that had stated this wasn't one of the unity teachers and he suddenly had this like massive awakening which I honestly think it was like a mania which I think has a lot to do with people that claim to be enlightened and looking back it was it was very manic like what he was creating and um he just said, okay, we're going to just start travelling to San Francisco on buses. And so it was. It just became this wacky tour with any changed names. And, oh, yeah, we all had Sanskrit names. That was a part of taking vows as well. So my name was Soma and that meant like the goddess of the moon and the Holy Spirit. And we ended up heading over to San Francisco and then that, fell apart at the end of about Christmas time, 1999, and then people splintered again. So that was the beginning of the end of North Carolina. The teacher who claimed that he was channeling MSI had been called Arjuna and was now calling himself Ghana, which has an involved meaning in the teachings of MSI that I'm not going to dig into at this point. But the teachers who had taught Carolyn's original first sphere course in Western Australia were not buying what he was selling and they broke off to form their own organisation, which was initially called the International Society of Ascenders, and headquartered in White Rock, British Columbia in Canada. They began to share their disenchantment with the direction that the Society for Ascension was taking with other SFA centres, some of which broke off and became ISA centres instead. If the People's Front of Judea just came to mind, then your parents' viewing habits were similar to mine. Other groups formed and splintered off as well, Ghana eventually stopped teaching altogether, and an attempt to sell off the Biodome Drive property to settle outstanding SFA debts failed, with the particular nature of the layout and building set up as it was. The Society for Ascension is still listed as a non-profit organisation, with its registered address at the North Carolina location, but looking it up on Google Earth today only shows an interesting-looking Airbnb at the location. One of the other Ashaya's Ascension offshoot groups has a page called The Lineage, under which there are depictions of eight presumably enlightened beings. The first is Divine Mother, followed by Beloved Mother Mary, and then Isha, which is the Ashaya name for Jesus. 
The last two are Maharishi Mahesh Yogi, the founder of Transcendental Meditation, and finally Maharishi Sadashiva Isham, or MSI. The couple originally heading up the International Society of Ascenders were known as Krishnananda and Gauri. But according to Carolyn and others, the path their organisation took was just as problematic in other ways. Carolyn told me about when her perspective started to shift, when it no longer felt like this was a thing that she took great joy in dedicating her life to. I never ever had a, like I always felt like the techniques were effective. So the spheres go up to, there's like hundreds of techniques that you can get. So there's like five spheres that are generally taught in regular society. And then when you go to teach training, you learn the sixth and seventh sphere. And I think along the way, I had seen and experienced instances of like just abuse, like emotional abuse. And and it never felt okay, but I, I think I felt that, oh, well, that's just what I have to learn and have to have to grow through and and so I would turn it back on myself and think that there was something that I needed to heal when I witnessed or experienced abusive situations and I I think it kind of accumulated along the way and my husband Chad I think had a sense of that way earlier and he felt that things weren't quite right, especially with the leaders that we joined in in Canada. And so I remember it, there were so many points, but there was a significant turning point when my teacher in Canada, Krishnananda Ishaya, who goes by the name, who gave himself the name of Maharishi, which means great sage, that's the moment when things really changed. And it suddenly felt scary to go back. At first, Carolyn and her then fiancé had been happy to be working with their original teachers again. This would have been in the year 2000. We all knew each other and we'd all remain good friends and so I was excited to go join them and create something new. So that felt really exciting. And then we started having the first teacher trainings up there. And the very first one was in Nelson in British Columbia, which I helped with a lot in the kitchen and with meetings and a lot of that. And yeah, I didn't receive remuneration for that. And I wasn't there legally to receive it. So I think at the end of it, I think I received like $500 for like six months. And, you know, they would, they would pay for things here and there, but I was doing a lot of work and just not getting paid for it. So that was, that was very common. And they separated my husband and I at the time we weren't married um, a, a lot. He was in White Rock and I was in Nelson. So they kept him there and they kept me in, in Nelson which was a common, uh, that happened a lot with us. And so from the very beginning, our relationship was not the most important thing. It was our dedication to the teaching. And so we were sent to different areas to teach often and separated quite a lot. So yeah, that was, that was tough. 
In spite of claiming not to be a religion, an aspect of the Society for Ascension that the International Society of Ascenders continued on with sounds more familiar to a religious context. Another major part of it was tithing. We had to tithe 10% of our earnings to the organisation, anything we earned, like while we were teaching first spheres or giving new techniques or advanced courses, 10% always had to go back to the organisation and that continued in Canada as well. And so they would receive envelopes of cash constantly. And the conditions of what we offered were never were never great and we'd, we'd charge like crazy prices for retreats. You know, they started at $10,000 and now they're upwards of closer to I don't know, 15, 20,000 and you're in bunk beds in crowded little rooms and it's just I never felt good about that. A poster on the FactNet message boards in 2003 wrote that the teacher training in Canada at that time was US $20,000. Carolyn saw those at the top living pretty comfortably, while she and Chad and others who were lower down the rungs were often having a hard time funding their day-to-day expenses. We always struggled financially. It was always a big, a big part of it and would rack up our credit cards and then like parents would help us out and so it was never it was never a realistic way of surviving in the world they were quite happy to attain the money and then to let us struggle and that became very frustrating that that continued so in the beginning when I was first working for the first six month course I think I was given 500 like at the end of six months. I mean, obviously my room and board had been paid for the entire time. And then as a gift, they paid for our like honeymoon to Banff, which was lovely. But, you know, that was that was about it. And then when we moved to, they, they had a couple of different retreats. So one was in Kelowna and then the last one was in Salmon Arm that we were at. And when I was working there, I think I was getting $200 a month like working in the kitchen all day and then helping with run retreats. So it was very minimal. And then in Mexico, it was like $500 US for a month. Yeah, so it was always super minimal. You definitely could do better in different circumstances or different countries, but it was never consistent. So you were usually struggling at the end of the day, which most of us were. And people that were financially secure were often bailing out centres, like offering their own money for rent and bills to make it survive, which felt awful to me, you know, because that was their their money. I didn't feel like we had a right to that at all. When Krishnananda took on the name Maharishi, Carolyn explained what it was that made things feel scary at this point in time. Because he'd had this all-encompassing power by taking on this name Maharishi and and it was because he had started acknowledging students in in unity consciousness and so he felt that he deserved that name um, because he was leading his students to unity consciousness and so that was a that was a big turning point for me where I felt a shift where I started feeling fear going back to the organisation and to see him 
because if we were we were sent to centers around the world to go teach ascension and to bring as many people in as we could and then to send them back to the teacher trainings so if we weren't being successful out in the world bringing in lots of ascenders to then send back to the retreats then we weren't doing our job and we weren't being successful so he would attack us for that it was our fault that we weren't being successful and and bringing all these people into ascension and so that was that was quite constant and so it starts to erode your like self-worth when you start hearing that so we were sent to centers and we were told not to work that we just had to survive on teaching ascension solely and so none of us were like making hardly anything and it was financially disastrous like we should have been working so we had just really bad advice from from the beginning Krishnananda was born William Walter McConnell Jr. in 1948 and known as Bill. One brief biography I found says that he served in Vietnam as a Marine and became involved with MSI and the Ashayas in 1996. Sometime in 2008, a former follower hired a private investigator and an attorney to look into his history, and they sent around their findings in an email to the other Ashaya teachers an edited copy of which was shared on the Cult Education Institute forum in July 2020. They had had direct dealings with Krishnananda and the finances of the organisation, which by then was known as The Bright Path, and reported some observations about various potentially unethical approaches to the business which had prompted them to commence the investigation work. They also mentioned long phone calls with Krishnananda's two ex-wives, the first of whom estimated he owed her $60,000, having left her in all kinds of financial trouble with payments on a condo that then had to foreclose and unpaid child support. His second ex-wife estimated that he owed her $48,000, including unpaid child support. She also said that he had been arrested for domestic assault and had threatened her and her father, but the investigation showed no convictions. Both ex-wives said that Krishnananda had very little to do with his four children. Such is the price of enlightenment, I guess. As I mentioned, today the International Society of Ascenders doesn't go by that name anymore and is now known as The Bright Path. On The Bright Path website, I couldn't find any entries about Krishnananda himself, which surprised me. According to the website, the organisation has over 600 ascension teachers in more than 30 countries around the world. One of the alarm bells that the former follower mentioned prior to hiring the investigator was how much Krishnananda and others in his inner circle were drinking. This person said that Krishnananda had been heavily critical of his former wife for drinking, and so the behaviour seemed hypocritical. It was something that Carolyn had noticed too. It was kind of a paradox because you'd have all these traditions that were incorporated into the organisation and what you needed to do, but then... The people at the top had the freedom to drink or smoke or do what they wanted. So it was more do as I say, not as I do. When that wasn't common knowledge that that was going on, I always struggled with that, always. And when I actually came to them and said, look, I look up to you, what what is going on? I didn't think this was a part of the path. They, they would just laugh at me. And, and so... 
I guess I started to realise we were on very different pages. These stories made me wonder whether this kind of incongruent behaviour had only become apparent to Carolyn with the International Society of Ascenders leadership because she had more access to the people at the top within the breakaway group, or whether it had been evident at all in the Society for Ascension organisation previously. Carolyn came to the SFA after MSI had already passed away, but it was within very recent memory of many when she first arrived in North Carolina. She told me of the impression she had formed from those who had known him. It's interesting because a lot of people had a lot of devotion and they absolutely believed he was an enlightened being. But I don't think a lot of people knew what was really going on behind the scenes or or spent that much time with him one-on-one because the two teachers that I was with in Canada that began the organisation up there said that they were actually relieved when he died of cancer. And I think he refused Western medicine. So that was never, it was always geared towards natural healing. And there was a belief that he had taken on so much karma from his students that that was why he had cancer. So there was a strong sense of devotion to him remaining and that continued with his students for a long time and it's still there in students that I'm aware of. But I think he would talk about past lives and get people to bring them up in meetings and I think he was trying to create like some kind of utopia, like I think he called it para, which is like heaven on earth. But I am aware of him being with underage girls and allowing that to occur to his son as well. He had many girlfriends and I know at least three were underage and I know that they have struggled for a long time in their lives since and that's, I think, been the saddest part. I didn't know that until after I'd left Carolyn told me a bit about some of the circumstances in which she saw unhealthy levels of control existing in the group that had formed from some of the embers of the Society for Ascension. I think that their intentions were good in the beginning. I really do. And then I think it takes a really rare soul to have the strength to not abuse power in a place of power. It takes an extremely rare soul. And so I think because they'd witnessed that within their teacher, that it just became a part of their experience and what they needed to do next to maintain the control over this organisation. And so it, it crept in and then it just became extremely apparent that that was what was happening that that coercive control, like you had to constantly refer to them for everything and they would, you, I mean, you could say, oh, I'd like to go to San Diego and we did. And so there was some kind of autonomy to a certain degree, but at the end of the day, you still had to refer to them for, for everything. And yeah, one, one young girl came in her as a teenager and 
has never had a boyfriend that I know of and I think she's about 30 now and she was told to not have a boyfriend. MSI had told the teachers to look out for the young people. So that was his recommendation to teachers was to bring them in. And so it definitely got worse and worse as time went on. You know, there would be moments of of just outright, like, intense verbal lack of use towards people for supposedly going off the path. And then just not the, like, if there are any mental health issues, like not dealing with them properly ever, not recommending health professionals for people or to go get medication if you need it. I think it had to get really bad for somebody to seek medical help and that was I that was a huge part that I was not proud of at all that you know people weren't referred to the right professionals for help and um, suffered because of it. Carolyn told me that one of the darkest times during her association with Ascension was when a close friend died by suicide. This was someone who had become a teacher before her and who had been struggling with his mental health after the breakdown of a relationship. He was told by his teacher to see a naturopath and took the suggested supplements for two weeks before concluding that they weren't working. Carolyn told me, The lack of guidance towards professional help with mental health still haunts me to this day. He was in his early 30s in 2006 when we lost him and I miss him dearly still. She also said that she knew of two other male teachers who were with the Bright Path and died by suicide following a lack of advice to seek professional medical treatment. I just want to remind you here of the need to refer to your own teacher on all life decisions within the organisational setup. So keep in mind that within that dynamic, the autonomy to take your own initiative and seek professional help without the explicit direction to do so wouldn't have really existed. I've also read accounts on forums of people whose friends or relatives attended Bright Path teachings in Mexico and died by suicide following their experiences. Mental health is obviously a big issue across society and outside of cults as well, but not encouraging someone who you consider to be under your instruction to get professional help in these situations sounds pretty unethical to me. If you stand up and say, look, I think this is not okay, then you have to go. And that's that's what happened with me in the end when I really questioned a lot of behaviour that I saw and I ended up just realising that I had to go, that we are not on the same page whatsoever with what is okay and what is not. Carolyn told me about a specific example of Krishnananda's behaviour that seemed in stark contrast to the idea that this was a teacher living in a state of enlightenment. It was an incident that happened at the end of her time with Ascension, which helped her to crystallise that it really was time to go. I definitely witnessed some behaviour from Krishnananda the last time that I went to Spain that was completely unacceptable. It was just a night that we went out with my friend, two friends and him, and we just went out to dinner and to get some tapas and they started drinking early and I wasn't at all. So, because I was a skipper, so I have like complete vivid memory of the experience. And yeah, it was just, just the behavior was appalling. And it really became so evident that he was not living in a state that he professed to be in. He was very derogatory towards my friend and like misogynistic, just, just 
just yuck, just awful. And um, even physically, just, yeah, so verbally, physically. And then on the way back, he said he had this bet with my friend that the Audi that I was driving could could go as fast as their motorbikes because they have motorbikes. And I said, oh, no, 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 I'm driving. You know, I haven't had a drink. And he said, no, no, stop the car. I've got to drive and I'm going to show you that this car can go as fast as our motorbikes and because I think he had a Ducati or something. And so I get out, which I regret, and so he hops in the driver's seat and then proceeds to drive like a maniac up this winding hill back to where we were living in the in the house. And I honestly thought like that we were going to die just white knuckling it the whole way and I was just terrified and I, they were as well. Just this just this complete arrogant like just act of just recklessness and putting all our lives at risk that was like a massive moment where I just said no enough's enough I'm not gonna I can't do this anymore and you're not the person that you say you are I don't know if you ever have been so we just I just came back to America at that point and then that was the last time I saw them and I said I'm I'm not your student anymore you're not my teacher anymore and I I just don't see you living in integrity with what you say that you are living in that state of consciousness. Carolyn finally left the International Society of Ascenders in 2009. Her immediate feeling upon disengaging with the group that she had dedicated her life to for over a decade affirmed that she'd made the correct decision. I was just really relieved. I mean, it was... I think a lot of anger came up in the beginning of just a sense of betrayal and just being misled for so many years and devoting my life to him and to the teaching when it wasn't the purest form and it never was based on the people that were at the top. Yeah, I I can find like way more inspirational people in life to look up to now, which... I'm happy to find in society, you know, even just my mum and dad, like their example is incredible, you know. And so having them just completely support me and in coming back to Australia and moving back here has been magical and and all both of our families like have been very supportive and we're so lucky to have that and to be able to heal and let all those beliefs go and start new again. That's not to say it was an easy road, but you'll recognise this from many of the stories on this podcast, that having supportive family and friends who welcome you back without judgement is one of the key ingredients that can make coming out of a cult possible and can provide the space for the work that needs to be done on recovering. I think I continue to heal from this like on a daily basis. I think it'll probably be continuing for the rest of my life as as a reality and I think just seeking professional help in the form of counsellors or psychologists is definitely the way to go and then finding resources like your podcast really helps just hearing other people's experiences that are similar and that there's a common thread throughout them and that there's not 
anyone that is at fault for being pulled into these organizations there's nothing wrong with us like we were just trying to find our sense of purpose in the world and that can occur to anyone so I think I'm definitely on that path of healing continuously and just trying to find joy in any little thing that I can like that brings me joy like mostly my daughter and the beach and my family and my work yeah I really I really look for the just the the things that mean so much to me these days and that bring little joys and just how I can create that in my own life and for my daughter especially. If Carolyn had stayed with Ascension, in all probability her much-loved daughter would never have been born. And after leaving, Carolyn and Chad still had a lot of work to do to be able to bring a child into their lives. When we left, we basically left with nothing and had to rebuild our lives all over again. So that was that was pretty overwhelming. And that was a huge part of my regret as well, that they're just major red flags, you know, that you just... You just wish that you had looked at earlier and you just have so much dedication that you think, oh, no, no, this is it. This is what I need to do. I'm I'm in 100%. I'm all in. (laughs) Until it just gets to the point of being ridiculous. And so, like, yeah, so we were in our 30s when we left and rebuilding our lives. And so having children wasn't, like, encouraged wasn't encouraged because you had to devote your life to teaching and I, d- I didn't I didn't know if I like I, I wanted to have kids and then I think in my 30s I started thinking yeah I'd really like to and so the only way that we could actually afford to have our daughter was to get regular jobs and so luckily that's just what we ended up doing and Financially, having to go through IVF to have her was the only way that we could have done that. Otherwise, she would not exist today. And (laughs) I'm so grateful that we did that. One of the biggest red flags that Carolyn sees today, in hindsight, is definitely the vows that students had to take to bind themselves to their teachers for life. As she mentioned earlier, she found this to be one of the most problematic parts of the setup, and it reminded me again of the issues that always popped up with the shepherding movement in the various religious groups we've talked about a few times before. A true teacher would never ask you to bind yourself to them for eternity, like they would offer it freely. And so there were so many aspects of that that I feel like is very dangerous. And then just assuming that that person is in a state of enlightenment, like I was saying, and that they can maintain that. I don't even know if if that exists anywhere. I know that there's incredible people like the Dalai Lama that live in absolute integrity and offer that. But I think it's a very rare spiritual leader that lives that purity. Very rare. I have yet to meet one <laughs> and I'm very wary of, of, of most because of my experience, you know. And I feel like this should be a part of education at schools. This should be a part of what we're taught, psychology, sociopaths, 
narcissism, like all these aspects that you just are unaware of if you do not experience that in life, how do you know what to look out for? So I feel like we should all be taught psychology in school to have a heads up about what to look out for in people like this because I feel like we're doing a massive disservice to society as a whole by not getting the word out because I think you just start to realize as as you rock along in life that oh yeah that doesn't feel right and I think just as you get older you start to have more awareness of that and and I think so many movements are helping that like the me too movement everything is just really helping us realize how to stand up and say, actually, that's not okay. It's not okay. Going back to when her sister had called up her police officer friend in the United States to check up on this group that Carolyn had become involved with, Carolyn now takes issue with its designation as harmless. I definitely wouldn't classify us as harmless or the organisations that we're in as harmless. No way. Definitely harmful. Yeah, if you're just learning the techniques, fine, just use them on a daily basis, but you certainly don't need to go take a teacher, take vows, dedicate your life to this. Like, that is not necessary at all. And I would say just be open to any teaching or anything that shines the light on being more conscious and aware of of ourselves. I find inspiration from so many different places these days. I found the following note really interesting from the FactNet message board poster who wrote up so much of the Society for Ascension history. Though I don't necessarily see optimism and naivety as the same as living in fantasy worlds and gullibility. As I'm sure listeners know by now, I much prefer to put the responsibility for coercion and manipulation in the hands of those at the top. Scribe wrote on the 9th of September 2005, quote, It's been my observation that spiritual people, for whatever reason have a tendency to be somewhat gullible and live in fantasy worlds to a greater or lesser degree, while simultaneously considering themselves to be among the vanguard of evolving humanity. This, in and of itself, is probably the main contributing factor that allows a group to stray so far into the fringe. When we get wrapped up in a sort of mythological, grandiose vision of our group or teaching or teacher, it becomes easy to rationalise almost any behaviour no matter how unrelated it may be to real inner growth in consciousness. Scribe concludes, For this reason, it's important to understand that there is no conflict between focused spiritual growth and a strong dose of common sense. In fact, ordinary common sense is the best guide when it comes to keeping things simple and real and avoiding losing sight of our real purpose. Carolyn told me about one really positive thing that she still takes with her from her time with Ascension. I think the sense of service was something that I came away with that was a beautiful aspect of the organisations. So I thought, you know, I'd still really like to do that in my life. And so I looked up when we first moved to Omaha, the Ronald McDonald House. So I started volunteering there in the office, which was awesome. And then when we moved to Wyoming, I started volunteering for Make-A-Wish, which was absolutely magical like the kids and the families that I met and the wishes that I was able to help come true for them 
was just incredible, just the joy, and that really lit me up. So I wish I could do that full-time. I wish that was like my full-time job. And then I was at, more recently, at the Dolphin Discovery Centre in Bunbury and trained in aquaculture. So we were helping save loggerhead turtles and feeding the octopus, and that was really rewarding too. So... I think finding different avenues to be of service in the world has been a major aspect that was a great part of what I came away from with the organisations. We'll wrap up this episode with some final thoughts from Carolyn. I just want people to know that they don't, yeah, they don't need to join organisations like this to feel a sense of community and purpose. I'd say just be very careful. Be very careful and see who's at the top and see what you can find out about them. I'd just be super cautious. And, And there's so many amazing techniques and things that you can just use at home. Yeah, just find the things that you gravitate towards that aren't going to be controlling in any way or telling you how to live your life just discover that for yourself access ad-free episodes and support the production of this independent podcast via Patreon or Acast Plus, or with a one-off donation or merch purchase. There's some exciting new merch on the Tea Public merch store too. Check out the link in the show notes. You can also listen to my audiobook, Do As I Say. Something you can do for free is give the podcast a rating on the podcast platform of your choice. I'd really appreciate that. This episode of Let's Talk About Sects was written and researched by me, Sarah Steele. It was edited and mixed by Matt Brazel, and music was by Joe Gould. A big thanks to Carolyn Milliman for sharing her story. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Thanks again to Audio-Technica, presenting partner for Season 5 of Let's Talk About Sects. If you're in the market for some top-quality audio equipment, use promo code LTAS10 at audio-technica.com on their Australian store to get a discount and support this show. Their range of headphones and turntables is quite ridiculous, and don't get me started on their mics. Audio-Technica, celebrating 60 years of listening. If you've been personally affected by involvement in a cult or would like to support those who have been, you can find support or donate to Cult Information and Family Support if you're in Australia via cifs.org.au, and you can find resources outside of Australia with the International Cultic Studies Association via icsahome.com. If you or someone you know is in crisis or needs support right now, please call Lifeline on 13 11 14 in Australia 
or find your local crisis centre via the International Association for Suicide Prevention website at iasp.info. Thanks for joining me and hope to catch you again next episode.